Episode 8 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time communicating directly with those that are launching the ICO, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. I think before we begin this week, we need to spend a little bit of time talking about venture capital, and also about crowdfunding, and then initial coin offerings, or token sales, as they're most commonly called now. The reason for this is that This is the second time that we're focusing on a company that is already established and which has already been through a couple of rounds of venture capital funding. And like the last company where this was true, this company's turning to an ICO as another channel to raise money and to expand existing operations. Let's take a step back and talk a little bit about funding. Now, the main difference between banks and venture capitalists is that the latter expect equity in the companies that they fund. That's a major difference. A bank has no such expectation. And maybe the easiest and possibly most entertaining way to learn about how companies are funded using the venture capital model is to watch an episode of a show like Shark Tank where you get to hear in real time all about the value of a company and the expectations of those that invest in it using this model of funding. You get to see, for instance, the type of vetting that goes on between the capitalists and the entrepreneurs. And it gives you a little bit of an idea about why venture capitalists believe that they do businesses in general a great service by carefully analyzing and providing the team their vision and their operational ability. But If you think about it, of the tens of thousands of businesses that form each year, only a tiny fraction will have access to venture capital. Now, with the advent of the internet, there have been sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And this concept is where the crowd sale was born. Now, in this model, anybody can invest in almost any amount of money, fractional sets of money. And the idea is that the accumulation of the crowd can provide enough money to actually launch a company or a project. Now in that particular case, a video on YouTube of a prototype, a halfway decent website, and most importantly, a good marketable idea can result in as much or more money that capitalists might venture in the first place. Now this method has launched thousands and thousands of products and thousands of companies 
so far. Now, when that started, not too many years ago, the venture capital industry argued that this method was a little bit suspect. Since, after all, who is vetting the companies? And with a barrier of entry set as low as a YouTube video, they argued, the vast majority of startups using the crowdsourcing method of funding would probably fail. Since they weren't put through the paces as they would be with venture capital involvement. But this is the same argument that was made by the publishing industry in the early days of electronic publishing, where they claimed that the literary world would be flooded with, charitably speaking, works that maybe shouldn't have been published at all. And I suppose if you have a Kindle and you noticed some of the ads that appear when you turn it on, you might tend to agree with that statement. Although we have to realize, I mean, just because there was a proliferation of maybe less than stellar work in the publishing industry doesn't mean that there aren't brilliant self-published books. And it's the same with companies. There are plenty of companies who might have been able to get through a round of venture capital funding, but they themselves chose a crowd sale. And why do you suppose they chose that method? Well, most likely because they wanted a degree of independence. In fact, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with an individual not that long ago who had been through several rounds of funding. And he confirmed that while the VC world has its benefits with respect to connections and business acumen, very often their involvement comes with strings. Well, let's just say ropes attached the one thing that a bank is not going to do is to tell you how to run your business. Now, there's some venture capitalists, maybe most, who are not shy about offering that sort of strongly worded advice. So now, here comes along this new method of crowdfunding. And crowdfunding, of course, absolves the business owner of listening to this type of advice. That's very often not part of the deal. You don't sign up to Indiegogo and then offer advice. You offer a little bit of money. And now finally we get to the ICO, the initial coin offering or the token sale. So what's the difference primarily between ICOs, token sales, and something like Indiegogo? Well, there are a couple. First, of course, is the token. Now whether or not the token is mineable, or whether or not the token performs a purely utilitarian function. And no matter what the companies say to discourage speculation, the fact remains that many, if not most, ICO tokens end up on an exchange and are traded on a secondary market. And in many cases, they increase in value and dramatically. Not only that, even if the token that is issued doesn't actually increase in value, the token that is collected as part of the sale, or I should say the channel that is collected as part of the sale, is usually Ethereum or Bitcoin. And that, in the last couple years, has had very, very large run-ups. This is just not something that happens with either Venture Capital or Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Because with venture capital, 
or traditional crowdfunding, what's raised is cash, is money, U.S. dollars or some currency. And that money is spent. There's a big difference when this is done with a token sale, especially lately. Now, to give you an example of the difference, let's just take a modest sale. The WINGS ICO, W-I-N-G-S ICO. It took place last November, 2016. And at the time, the company raised just over 2,000 Bitcoins. And at the time, November of 2016, that was worth about 2 million US dollars. Now, those 2,000 Bitcoins, what are they worth now? Quite a bit more. Upwards of 10, 11 million dollars at the time that this podcast is being published. So even if they spent half the Bitcoin that they raised, they still have left more than twice the United States dollars equivalent than they initially raised. That just does not happen in traditional funding, venture capital, bank, or otherwise. Now, the other difference between ICOs at the moment and crowdfunding sales like Indiegogo and and venture capital as well is that there's almost zero regulation of token sales. Now, the online crowd sale industry like Kickstarter and Indiegogo has been around a little bit longer, and there has been some clear direction from the SEC regarding these. There's been rules passed and so forth. But this added element of the token is something that has really taken regulators by surprise. There's been some recent action by the SEC and some even more aggressive actions by countries like China and Korea, which seem to indicate that we're just beginning to see the regulation of these token sales. But as of right now, there isn't anything very specific and well-defined. Now, one of the big differences between the token offering and venture capital is that by definition, and this is the one thing that is very clear from the SEC, is that a token sale cannot offer equity in the company or future profits by the company without being considered a security. Venture capital is precisely the opposite in the sense that with venture capital, the expectation of future profit sharing as well as a percentage in equity of the company is a given in most cases. Now, whether or not this lack of accountability or profit sharing or otherwise uh, security-based kind of concept is going to lead to widespread abuse remains to be seen. And then we'll be closely watching and reporting on it. Now, one thing you can do uh, to sort of track this is you can do a little bit of research. You can go to bitcointalk.org or you can go to Etherscan yourself and you can look at the transactions that are occurring shortly after an ICO. Now, if you see what appears to be cashing out of the ICO by what could be the original members, then you get a sense of whether or not there is a sort of abuse going on post-ICO. And you can go back because especially these ERC-20 tokens, which you have visibility in Etherscan, you can just really watch what's going on. You can see the transaction. You could trace them. It's a lot of work, but you could do it. 
you can get a sense of what is actually going on, you know, with an ICO. So I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time and just try to explain that there is a fundamental difference between these sales that we're analyzing each week and more traditional ways of funding companies. Okay, listeners, this week's upcoming initial coin offering is... Stay a while. Now, this company, which is operational and with an existing platform, is intending to use a token and blockchain technology to fill some gaps that currently exist in a specific portion of the real estate rental market, specifically medium-term rentals. Now, traditionally, medium-term rentals, which are defined in this case as a rental between a month and a little less than a year, have been served by what is known as the corporate rental market in the last 20 years or so. And I would say that it's probably in response to a a much more mobile workforce and a much more project-based economy. I think you find that people are doing projects for anywhere between a couple of months, upwards of a year or two. Usually it's a team of people working on a project that has a beginning a middle, and most importantly, an end where the team actually goes home. But as the white paper points out, recent demographic trends have expanded this market a great deal. For example, there's been a research issued by Bank of America Merrill Lynch economists. It was actually recently reported on Business Insider this last June. And that it appears that the millennial generation, which is described as between ages 25 and 34, are, are buying less and renting more. You don't see them buying homes as much. They're renting much more. Now, part of this, we know, is because they're being squeezed by about a $1.5 trillion outstanding student loan debt mountain. But some of it is, in fact, as Stay A While lists in their white paper, that this generation is, is just more nomadic, and it's just less inclined to set up a nest. Now, there was one chart on the report that I investigated that was pretty striking, where it showed this age group over the last four decades with a dramatic rise, a living situation outside the standard domestic situation. Now, this age group currently belongs to a generation where the place you reside is less important than what you can do. And... Now it's possible to work from practically anywhere. So another really important point that this report made was that this age group is flocking to urban centers. We've seen this over the last 25, 30 years. It's just more of that original exodus from the rural environments to the suburban and now to the urban city centers. Now this trend is something that Stay A While intends to capitalize on. And their intention is to provide an upscale rental market in some nice cities, stylish urban settings, with the convenience and the immediacy that this young millennial generation demands. The other thing that Stay A While wants to address is this great deal of difficulty that foreign nationals experience in finding a place to stay for months at a time, particularly in America. Uh, where creditworthiness is more difficult to approve 
for foreign nationals. And there's various different kinds of international measures to establish that creditworthiness that just don't line up to establish trust. You know, there's, there's, it's not always a simple carryover from one country to another when you show up and try to rent something. It becomes pretty difficult and actually pretty expensive for people to move as fluently across borders as perhaps it should be. And in fact, if you look at recent political trends in Europe with Brexit, as well as political developments in the U.S., it seems to indicate that this situation of sort of tightening borders is not going away anytime soon. Finally, the Stay a While platform plans to use the blockchain to create a much more efficient method of rental logistics, things like deposit, escrow, dispute resolution. And you can do that with uh, things like multi-signature wallet transactions on the blockchain. You can write smart contracts using the Ethereum platform to sort of make it easier to create these transactions, which are necessarily complex, particularly when you've got multinationals trying to uh, move across borders. So that's the idea. Let's have a look at the company. First of all, I think it's important to note that this company has already been through a couple of rounds of private equity venture capital funding. So in terms of the company, our due diligence is pretty well supported. And from a business leadership perspective, that's a huge plus. Now, why do I say that? Well, in my opinion, it's a lot more efficient for us as analysts to let those venture capitalists support our due diligence for us and also vet the team. And then ultimately recognize that they will probably do a much better job than we ever could. Now, that's not to say, of course, that we don't do our own looking around and our own kicking of the tires and our own investigation, but it's a great starting point. So naturally, we want to at least visit the website. Now, if you do that, stayawhile.com, I think I would be very surprised if you found something that you didn't like about the way the company presents itself. Um, the company itself has a, a very pleasing design on the website. Uh, they communicate their ideas and themselves um, very well, very well spoken. The resumes, the LinkedIn profiles, you can tell by looking that, that this is a group of very talented people. And I actually have to say, this is absolutely the first team that I've looked at uh, with respect to token sales that has a robot on the team. Now, how cool is that, right? But there is one thing that we would be remiss if we didn't bring up, and that's there's no one listed particularly on the team itself that has a long history of blockchain experience. At least not that I could find. There are some programmers, and how could there not be, since they have a fully functional platform for rentals that they built themselves. So we know that they complete a project, but there's no specific deeply recognized blockchain specialists that are listed on their team. When I had some conversations uh, with some of the team members, they indicated that yes, in fact, uh, part of what they're planning to do in the near future is to hire uh, that sort of expertise, uh, particularly to, to help uh, integrate the token into their uh, current operations. 
Let's talk about the white paper. Uh, the, this particular white paper, I feel, is, is very good at presenting the business model and a potential market share. It talks about a roughly $10 billion market share. And it, it shows very well how that market share is underserved and underrepresented. And again, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the midterm rental market. And the white paper itself showcases, uh, with actually photos of properties under management, uh, the sort of the design and the branding and the philosophy of the company. Uh, section two goes into describing in ways in which the blockchain can assist in solving some of the problems and inefficiencies in standard real estate transactions. Uh, this is a classic example of what we see in sort of Bitcoin 101 classes. It's, it's the escrow problem. So you got a landlord who needs a security deposit, which is held while the tenant occupies the property. And at the end of the term, the tenant vacates the property. And if the condition is left at the standard specific in the terms of the agreement, the security deposit is released back to the tenant. Now, as they point out, uh, in the white paper, using a smart contract and a tokenized payment system, it's possible to use a what is called a multi-keyed signature transaction, where there's two of three keys required to release the funds in any direction. Now, one key, of course, is for the tenant, and one key is for the landlord. And again, we're talking about cryptographic keys here, not physical keys. And then there's a third key for a neutral party. And when the tenant vacates, they would apply their signature key, and now only one of two remain. Now, if the landlord inspects the property and finds that it's as it should be, in fine condition, then the landlord applies their signature key to the contract and the transaction is completed. So we want to hope that in most cases, that transaction will be automatically completed, the funds will be automatically released. Now, if they find some issues, then they can withhold their key. And then the tenant expecting the payment would appeal to the third party. And then of course, evidence would be presented by both sides, the platform would allow for that. And then the third party would have the ability to adjust the payout accordingly if necessary. But in any case, at some point, they would apply their signature to release the appropriate amount of funds in the appropriate direction. And as part of the smart contract, the tenant and landlord would share in whatever fee the third party would require for their service. Of course, you could program that any way you wanted to. Now, you might, might ask, well, okay, great, thank you. How is this more efficient than an escrow company? Well, it's not specifically mentioned in the white paper, but we can answer that from our own experience in, in analyzing other token sales. Uh, there was one not that long ago that we did about real estate. And it's, it's basically um, really the amount of fees that escrow companies charge. And in fact, escrow companies now are going to charge a fee regardless if they're required at all, right? Just to hold it in escrow. There's going to be a fee for that. In this particular case, the fee is only incurred if the service is needed, if there's a dispute 
So that's a key difference by using cryptographic escrow, if you will, or blockchain-provided escrow. Now, secondly, we should presume that the people who provide this service will not require the typical type of overhead that an escrow company would require. When I say this service, I'm talking about that neutral third party. So it's not going to be an escrow company. It's going to be a member of the network who's willing or vetted to be able to provide those services. So the fees presumably would be a good deal lower. And finally, there's no banking intermediaries between the escrow company and, and, and the other sides of the transaction. It's all one simple, although conditional, of course, transaction. So I felt that the white paper does a pretty good job of showing precisely how specific functions like those and methods from the Ethereum ERC-20 standard can be applied to specific business issues. It was one example. Another good example is that because of the relatively transparent nature of the public blockchain like Ethereum, it's possible for one side of a contract to retrieve the balance of the account of the other side of the contract. So this in and of itself can act as a sort of security measure where the contract can be validated by capacity. So you think about this, how this is done in real life. I'm sure there's plenty of you listeners who have had to scan and email banking statements to prove that you have a certain amount of money in your bank account in order to complete real estate transactions. I know I have had to in the past. In this case, it's done by maintaining a token wallet with a certain balance and using the blockchain to conduct all aspects of this contractual relationship between the tenant and the landlord. Now, this is also not mentioned in the white paper, but this is true. The profile of a tenant becomes more transparent and their status is influenced by the so-called stake that the tenant has in the token. So needless to say, a token holder is free to create as many functional wallets as they need. So if there's an issue of privacy or something like that. So it is possible for them to obscure portions of their stake in the network, but overall, the stake that the member has in the network would be a natural way to determine the trustworthiness of that individual as they participate in the network. Now, an interesting approach uh, that I found in this paper was that in order to explain why a token should be used in the project at all, the authors actually invoked a blog post. So the blog post was written by a person experienced in the venture capital world, and then they sort of used that as a jumping point to explain point by point. And in fact, in an email exchange between myself and the CEO, uh, it was explained that there's currently in place the consumption of APIs with various services that determine credit and background checks. That's already in place. And if you read the white paper, you'll see that they refer to uh, a predetermined algorithm to automatically accept or reject a member. And one of the things that I learned from the CEO was that in the United States, Companies like this have to comply with federal equal opportunity housing law, which actually prohibits discrimination on any basis other than a numerical algorithm. So, of course, they already have one. 
Uh, she also explained to me that there's plans to build on what they have now using the blockchain and to use the token in this manner. So if we use our imagination, we can see, even if it's not directly and specifically articulated in the white paper, how consuming APIs from background check agencies and then the information returned from those APIs could be used in the smart contract to approve membership and maybe reward the new member with a wallet and a small balance. This I could, I could see as, as, a, as a doable part of the platform. I, I felt that uh, there was one particularly laudable section of the white paper uh, that I liked was, was the treating of this problem of the different international credit tracking systems. And the idea there is, is to create a blockchain-based stay-a-while sort of credit scoring system, almost as a sort of replacement to the FICO scores. Uh, obviously, this is not something you can do overnight, but the fact that it's on their roadmap um, is laudable in the sense that uh, clearly, as we all know, the FICO score method is, 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 uh, is definitely uh, being held by three very large, uh, I would hesitate to say monopolistic, but close to monopolistic companies. Uh, so it would be great to, to grow something uh, sort of organically using this platform. I feel like this is a, actually a good use of the blockchain um, just by virtue of the fact that that's the immutability, the transparency of the technology should assist in this. The only slight issue that I could see with that concept is that, you know, when you use the blockchain in its purest form, I mean, immutable really means immutable. So mistakes, so to speak, cannot be really reversed that easily. Uh, like you would in a relational database, you just update the query. You just say you have an update query that just changes the value in the table. It doesn't quite work that way. But correcting transactions can, of course, be added to the blockchain, you know, subtraction adding as you need. It would have the same end result anyway. Uh, the difference, of course, is that these so-called corrective actions could be performed by the holder of a certain type of key or token, you know, cryptographically speaking. When you get to that point, when there's certain actors doing certain things, there's a permission-based, you sort of slide into a uh, the concept of a permission-based blockchain, which we've been talking about recently as well. Uh, there's nothing bad about that. It's just not specifically mentioned in, in this particular white paper. It, it just may lead to that. Uh, basically, all in all, I have to say that this was a well-thought-out white paper. Uh, let's look at their roadmap. The roadmap shows that they'll have an administrative portal in place by the end of the third quarter of this year, uh, 2017, which is coming up. Um, with the construction of the blockchain architecture and smart contracts initially deployed by, by the end of the year. Uh, the first quarter of 2018, uh, they're hoping to see a token wallet and a payment system using the actual tokens. Uh, the second quarter projects the ability to waitlist properties and discounts, plus also a priority mechanism. In the third quarter, uh, they want to plan that sort of FICO replacement concept uh, with tokens to demonstrate uh, credit worthiness. And in the last quarter of 2018, uh, they are talking a little bit about um, supervised machine learning for optimal apartment pricing. Now, that's kind of an interesting point. Uh, I was interested in that sentence in the white paper, so I did a little bit of uh, looking around. In fact, I found a paper that was published by some researchers at Northwestern that, that did something kind of interesting in this area. They, they wrote a spider to scrape Craigslist 
you know, that yielded about 4,000 apartment rentals. And then they used uh, a concept in machine learning known as uh, a regression tree to sort of accurately estimate what rental prices should be based on 10 separate attributes that they injected into the algorithm, like the number of bedrooms, the types of property, pets, parking, things like that. And they found that when they used machine learning principles, they actually increased the accuracy of pricing rentals significantly. Now, this is not something that is specifically related to blockchain, but it certainly is an interesting um, way to look at, at apartment rental pricing, and I was sort of interested to see it in, in the white paper. Uh, there are some longer-term visions that they have as well, uh, sort of um, talking about the things like Internet of Things with smart digital locks. And I, I can only imagine this would t be tied to a smart contract where the apartment is sort of unlocked based on a payment that goes through the system. Kind of interesting. Let's talk about the token sale. The name of the token is going to be STAY, S-T-A-Y. Uh, the price uh, as of this moment is not set because the rapidly fluctuating price of Ethereum. Uh, the token sale begins on October 30th, so a little bit more than a week away from the time that we're publishing this at uh, 12 a.m. Eastern Time, and it ends a month later on November 30th. Um, the token issuance, if you participate in this, would actually happen in December. Uh, there's some pretty aggressive discounts, a 75% discount for the first 25,000 tokens uh, issued and a 50% discount for the next 200,000 tokens that are sold, and then a 25% discount for the next million. And payment can be made using Ether. They're going to be using KYC and AML, Know Your Customer, Anti-Money Laundering Screening. Uh, the white paper lists what amounts to a soft cap of 500 to 1,000 Ether to be considered a success. Uh, and the paper mentions that there will be a refund if that soft cap is not met. Now, the total token allocation is set for 50 million. 55% will go to the public sale itself and 30% reserved for future use. We've seen that lately in a couple of uh, token sales. 15% uh, of the tokens will be uh, allocated to the team at large. Uh, in the white paper, it's not mentioned, but on the Telegram channel, uh, the CEO explained that team tokens, and those are the ones that I just mentioned, the 15%, they're locked for six months. And then 1 24th of the tokens are unlocked every month thereafter for the next two years. What I liked about that when uh, she explained that on the Telegram channel, that's designed to prevent what we were talking about before about just dumping tokens. If only 124th, if the payout is going at that rate, then it sort of encourages them to stick around for at least two years to make this happen. I'll talk about the reaction from the community. Uh, it's not been particularly passionate one way or another. Um, there's been a little bit of a lack of volume. One thing that I noticed uh, on Telegram and it is actually true is that these high traffic sites that provide ICO listings charge large fees to get listed. And uh, so it's, it's sort of hard to know whether or not uh, if you're releasing a token to uh, choose any of those or whether or not that'll pay off. I think that what we might do in the future is, uh, is, is do a segment here or, or an entire show on uh, investigating sort of the success of some of these ICOs that have gone and used 
professional consulting companies to help them with their ICOs or, or the ones that have gone out and bought ads on some of these ICO sites and, and see how their sort of numbers lined up. It might be interesting. In terms of viability, uh, I agree with the market that was listed by Stay A While on their white paper. Uh, young, relatively rootless demographic. I also see another side of the demographic spectrum as well, which wasn't really pointed out in, in that white paper. And that's this huge baby boomer sine wave that has just pushed through the last five decades, like some kind of huge marketing super tanker. And the people in that demographic are, are, are similar in their lives at the moment you know, in some ways, or some portions of those people are certainly to this younger generation, just more numerous, uh, meaning there a lot of them have the same rootless attributes than the younger generation as well. I mean, they don't have the kids anymore. They can just be nomads. So I do think that there's sort of two sides to this uh, that you could look at as well. Uh, they're interestingly different and interestingly similar markets for this sort of medium term housing market. Right now, uh, in terms of business viability, stay a while, uh, the stay a while footprint remains in the US. Uh, but you can see that there's plans to move to some major cities in Europe and elsewhere. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk briefly about SEC compliance. Examination of this white paper seems to yield primarily a utilitarian token. And by that, I mean, uh, there are uses that the token will play in the network. Uh, people who have this token will be members of the network. They will be able to use the token for voting, for credit scoring, for membership benefits, membership club, discounts, collateral, booking priorities, uh, payment for services. We don't see this as any kind of uh, indication of an equity. Uh, it, there doesn't seem to be any uh, mention of any kind of um, speculative value. In fact, in discussions uh, on Telegram, the CEO specifically pointed out that they needed to treat the token in a way that was designed to reduce speculation. And uh, one of the more experienced uh, members of the Telegram channel that I saw that was a commentator from a participation perspective uh, lauded them for going by the book so to speak. So I, I think that uh, this is one of those tokens that uh, would not be on the radar of the SEC. It's my own personal opinion based on what I've seen. And based on some recent action by the SEC, uh, we see that they are going for very low-hanging fruit uh, where it was fairly obvious uh, that the token that was issued was backed by some kind of asset and would be considered an investment from a security perspective. We don't see that here. We see this treated more as a commodity, as something that would be used. The final takeaway for this one is that uh, I find Stay A While to be an attractive, uh, established company, already been vetted to some extent by the venture capital world, which I find to be a plus. They seem to have a pretty solid idea I uh, can see definitely some valid uses of a tokenized system, uh, particularly the replacement of that FICO system, I think is really interesting, uh, using the blockchain to reduce fees, streamline the vetting process, 
in my experience, the team was quite willing to communicate, uh, discuss ideas, and uh, I see it as a as an interesting project, and I certainly wish them uh, the best uh, in their sale and their subsequent project as it develops over time. Okay, that's it for ICO 41 this week. I uh, very much want to thank all of you who have written and who have uh, provided feedback. It's been enormously helpful for me. I'll keep this going in the direction. Some of the ideas that you've presented, fantastic. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. We are going to definitely launch uh, another more basic, more fundamental uh, podcast in the near future. It's coming, I promise. (laughs) I can't say exactly when, but uh, it will happen. And again, thank you so much for uh, your listening and thank you so much for your great comments. Really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.